Hey, thanks for the download today. This is Brandon Laws, your host of Transform Your Workplace. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium and the complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Today's guest is Jackie Insinger. She's the author of Spark Brilliance, How the Science of Positive Psychology Will Ignite, Engage, and Transform Your Team. And this fits perfectly with the theme of our podcast, Transform Your Workplace, because we're talking about positive psychology and how when leaders practice positive psychology, it's truly transformational. It sparks growth, innovation, and it sparks brilliance inside of the people within the organization. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jackie. I'm a huge fan of positive psychology. And I think that will come through in in this episode today. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you next week. We got lots of good stuff coming. Jackie, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Brandon. We're going to talk about your book today. It releases, we're recording on the 21st of March, but your book is released on the 22nd. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's called Spark Brilliance, How the Science of Positive Psychology Will Ignite, Engage, and Transform Your Team. I'm a huge fan of positive psychology, so this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it. I want to start off with a quote from your book. I love pulling out quotes. You said, when it comes to your mindset, the absence of sadness doesn't equal happiness. When it comes to your team, the absence of poor performance doesn't equal great performance. Neutral is merely the starting point where great things become possible, not the final destination, end quote. Is there anything wrong with being stuck in neutral as stated in the quote, or is that a really, is it a good place to be in, in a lot of cases? You know, that's a really good question. I think, you know, this has come up a lot lately, especially during the pandemic, where people dipped frequently, almost all of yeah, that. Or, or are they swinging the other side too? It's like, it's a constant swinging, it feels like versus yes. being neutral. Yes. And a lot of us, you know, really sat in the negative numbers for a while and we're kind of swimming upstream to get to neutral and neutral was like the end goal. Like, I just want to feel okay. Like I want a normal, right? Our goal was to get to normal. And, you know, with the quote that you pulled, I love that because baseline, you know, might be a comfortable place to be. And it might be a goal at some points when we are in the negative number, but it shouldn't be the end goal. In my mind is we have this endless road of positive numbers where all of this potential lies that it's okay to be sitting in neutral, but let's recognize, you know, we're at baseline right now and that's okay. That might be comfortable, but let's find ways to continually take action to move the needle into the positive numbers. You mentioned in the book that there's been a lot of emphasis on the negative part of psychology. Uh, I personally, I've seen it a lot myself, the cognitive bias, the list goes on, but there's a lot of authors and professors doing a lot of work on the negative part of psychology. Whereas you wrote a book on positive psychology and there's been a lot of great work in this area. Do you believe that we should spend more time on the positive psychology? So my belief is that they both have 
really important places. And traditional psychology really leans toward, you know, looking into what's wrong and fixing it, right? Healing us and getting back to baseline when we have something that needs to be fixed or healed. What we had neglected is what about studying what goes right and how to make that even stronger, right? The whole idea of, you know, building what's strong, not just fixing what's wrong. And I think there's a spectrum and they both have a place But like you mentioned, cognitive bias, like we default to the negative. That's where we naturally go. So if we even just put equal emphasis on the positive, we're just going to balance it out. We're not going to forget, you know, the bad things. We're not trying to put on rose-colored glasses and pretending they don't exist. We're not going to forget. We're not wired that way. But if we can just kind of even the scales a little bit by trying to emphasize what is right and how do we get there um, and how to really identify those things that we can do to get better. I think that's where the emphasis can go. Yeah, it's interesting you said we default to the negative because I've heard that, you know, the term lizard brain or whatever, like we just default to whatever is core to our, our being. And there's so much noise out there in this world the media, you know, it bleeds, it leads, you know, those sort of things where it's like, we're just so attracted to the wrong that's going on in the world that I do believe the positive psychology side will balance things out and can help people. Is that, do you believe that as well? I believe that a hundred percent because we are wired, you know, and and I know you read the book, like to see the bear, right? If we didn't see the bear back in the caveman days Mm -hmm. and we could get eaten by the bear. So we're wired to look for the bear and now we don't need to do that, but that's how our brains work, right? Yep. I mean, I guess it depends where you live. Um, but uh, most of the time, we don't have to be on watch out for the bear. So the idea of opening our minds up and really intentionally deciding, I want to scan for what's good and what's right. And the more we scan for it, the more we notice it, the more we see it, the more we experience it. So we can control how we tip those scales for ourselves. How long has positive psychology been an area of study? Maybe who are the, some of the first people that started looking into this and who inspired you to, to write a book and study it? Well, it started back in 98. Um, Dr. Martin Seligman, who is the head of the American Psychological Association, he was in charge and he was charged with kind of looking into new fields of study. And so he was a traditional psychologist and decided he was the person who coined the phrase, let's build what's strong, not just fix what's wrong. And said, you know, what if we also, in addition to start focusing on this part of our psychology and what makes people thrive and communities thrive? So he really started this field and I think it just, I think the world needed it. I think people wanted it and were craving things like this because it feels very like a deep breath, like, oh, it's okay to look for those things. It's okay to want to fulfill our potential and want to get better and want to be happy and built the whole, um, the whole movement around it. And I think at first people were questioning it as kind of fluffy, like, um, like positive thinking, right? Yeah. Total woo. Like, Oh, well, if I just think positive and that's really not what it is, it is a science. It's based on neuroscience. It's based in research, positive psychology and positive thinking are not the same thing. Um, and I think that's a, a really important differentiator. There's nothing wrong with the power of positive thinking. Come on. Nothing wrong with it. And it does play a role, right, in positive psychology, but that in itself right, right, <laughs> doesn't right. necessarily do the whole thing. So one of the things that I found interesting and just when, as you're kind of bringing positive psychology into the workplace, how do we engage people and all that? You were talking about the differences between the golden rule and the platinum rule. Maybe define those two and why you believe the platinum rule is more of an area of focus in the workplace. 
Yeah. Well, the golden rule, most people have heard of this one, treat others how we wish to be treated, (laughs) has been, you know, yeah, it's been around forever, right? And I think it works in large societies mainly to teach us what not to do, right? As these basic rules of interaction. But in real relationships, who's to say that, Brandon, you want to be treated the way I want to be treated and that your needs and desires are the same as mine? Like, really? Um, Mm -hmm. I can't make that assumption. And so the platinum rule is treat others how they wish to be treated. And to me, that's just the initial mindset shift that needs to happen as a leader, right? As soon as you flip to, oh, my version of support is probably not yours. The way you want feedback is probably different the way I want feedback, right? What lights you up in your work might be different than what lights me up. And just shifting into, I need to understand, you know, you and honor those differences and then leverage those strengths to have more effective and meaningful relationships. I I believe it just starts with that quick shift into platinum mindset. Yeah, I wish the shift was that easy, though, because I imagine a lot of uh, manager leaders are using the golden rule, not the platinum rule. Mm -hmm. And I mean, any tips for making that mental shift? Is it easy? (laughs) You know, it's a practice and all of this is a practice. You know, I think it's simple, but not necessarily easy, but I think when it clicks and you realize and you insert that pause moment and get a practice in place and and you see in the book, you know, I have all those like self-evaluations and next steps with your team. It builds it in, in a methodical way of asking questions. And if you, as a leader, ask a certain set of questions to everybody you lead and serve, it becomes easier. So instead of having to remind yourself, platinum rule, platinum rule, instead, you've had a conversation around, you know, how do you prefer feedback? What does a win look like to you? What did you love about this project? What was frustrating? And when you start asking those questions, now it sticks because it's a conversation. It's not just a constant reminder. I think what like stuck for me and especially reading your book and just me as a, as a leader is like, how would I know how people want to be treated? And if I'm using the golden rule as a default, like, okay, I'm just going to treat it in the way I you know want to be treated, whether it's communication or just whatever it may be. When you start to like have awareness around that, you actually kind of get it like, oh, actually, and it's a two way, it's a dialogue I need to have. I need to ask specific questions so that I get good answers about what they want, what they want out of work and to drive engagement. Do you find any like really good questions to ask employees about what they want? Yeah. Yeah. I think they're great questions. And I think just even starting with when you're onboarding them, you know, how would you like to learn this material? You know, how often do you want check-ins with me about it? Do you prefer email or face-to-face you know, how frequently would you like to have feedback sessions, you know, mutual feedback sessions from this project? What was the most energizing to you? What was the most frustrating to you? What would help look like to you right now, right? How can we best support you given this specific thing going on, right? So just checking in on these particular questions over time, even, you know, what does the win feel like? Just asking the more you ask, and I have sets of questions in the book too, that are more basic questions based on the topic, But asking, just always think, like, just ask the question. We always try to guess. And that's such a silly thing to do, right? <laughs> or even to guess about like, oh, well, these employees want the a certain way, then everybody else must want it this way too. But we know that people are so unique yeah. in their needs. Like one person's outgoing, one person's introverted. Like 
you just gotta, you, you should default to everybody's a unique individual. So get them one-on-one and ask them. Right. I'll have conversations with leaders who, you know, go and have hard conversations and they come back, they're like, well, I didn't think that went well. I think that, you know, they interpreted my message wrong and blah, blah. I'm like, well, did you ask? Did you ask how it went? Did you ask how it well, no, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really simple. Once you get in that mindset of like, Oh, I can cheat. I could just cheat and ask. I know. Well, it seems so simple. And I think in having a conversation like this and reading your book and reading other books like this, where I'm like, it seems so simple as a leader, like, why don't I just ask? But there's something that holds people back, whether it's their, their own work, they're, they're busy, they're afraid to ask, or they would rather just make assumptions. What, what do you find that they're held back for whatever one reason or another? What is it? You know, I think, uh, again, going back to the platinum rule, I think everybody has different reasons. Mm. But, you know, what I see commonly too is sometimes once you've gotten to a very high level of leadership, there's a confidence that comes with that of, I already know what I'm doing, right? I don't need to stop and ask these questions. I get it. I'm a good leader. And you can be a great leader and you might be a great leader, but you can also become you know, an exceptional leader. And part of going from great to exceptional or great to extraordinary is really figuring out how do I fine tune for the individuals on my team? How do I up-level them and light those sparks where they're shining brighter, right? Which, which shifts everything in the company. So I think there's that point too, where a lot of people have gotten to great and they don't realize maybe there are these other steps you can continue to take to get even better. Since you just mentioned sparks, I was going to ask you about like, you know, throughout the book, you're talking about little sparks um, and we, we're trying to draw out the brilliance in people. What are these sparks that you're describing in the book? There are these moments, um, these moments where you light something in somebody, right? Whether it's finding that project where their skills meet what energizes them, right? That sweet spot, whether it's celebrating a win and giving them that dopamine hit, right? That makes them feel so good. Whether it's building that authentic connection with somebody where they feel so seen and valued and you're creating, you know, and that gets that, you know, oxytocin in their brain. So there's all this neuroscience and all these brain chemical things that, that are these hits of all these positive things. Like we talked about with play and humor and you get these moments where this momentum starts to build and these sparks start to build. And it becomes like a fireworks show when you get all of these people and they're getting lit up in all of these ways that create this bigger and faster momentum and happiness happens and fulfillment happens. And that's where you see engagement scores change and retention um, improve and performance and employee experience surveys, like all of those things. And ultimately bottom line changes but it's with these pattern of sparks that come out. That's what I've seen. Yeah. At our company, the company I represent, Zenium, we do an annual survey with the clients and even our own employees. And we ask them like some of the top drivers for their happiness at work. And time and time again, it's positive relationships that come up in the top three every year. And that just leads me to believe, I mean, even after reading your book, connection and relationships are really important. And the last couple of years have been pretty weird, I think, for a lot because we're in silos. Some people are working from home and we're just, you know, trying to keep our distance. You know, in your opinion, how do we connect more at work in a meaningful way? Because if we know that it drives engagement, people are happier. What can we do to bring people together? Yeah, I think that's a, such a 
an important question right now. And to your point with the research around it, you know, the longest study in history, the the big Harvard ongoing um, longevity study showed, I think they've been doing it for over 80 years. There's three people in charge of the study. The number one factor for happiness and long-term success is the relationships we build over anything else. And it just is so more important than what you eat, what diseases you have, like everything. It's incredible to see. And what's interesting, Brandon, I find over COVID is what I call culture theater has kind of had, you know, it's bubble burst. So a lot of people, a lot of companies who don't put in the effort and the time to build those authentic connections with their team um, and put in that time for employee fulfillment, you know, and instead put the Band-Aid layer of, you know, Taco Tuesdays and, you know, beer on tap and, you know, all the different fun games around what happened is as soon as everybody went remote, those cover-ups disappeared and you actually see in a raw form which companies put in that effort for that real connection and real employee value over others. If you have those perks in addition to the other, great, that's awesome. But standing alone, I think those just showed, you could see which companies had put in the effort and which didn't. And what I love is so many clients showed up as through this time of, we need this more than ever. This is so important. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing people drop off if they don't have that. And what do we do? And, you know, I really believe showing up authentically as a leader is the number one thing and that builds trust, right? And trust is imperative. And when we can get that trust and that authenticity and build in that personalization of work, right? Because now that it's all blurred lines, especially mm-hmm. if we're hybrid or, or remote still, yeah. you know, there is no difference and we are who we are and we're starting to show up authentically ourselves. And when that is valued and those relationships are formed, that's where you see that true connection and that true sense of community form and people want to stay because relationships are so important. So putting in the, the effort to have the, the magic in the moments, not just in the meetings, I think is really important for all leaders to be focused on right now. Yeah. When you run across somebody who says like, I hate my job, uh, is it because they hate the work itself or is it all these other factors we're talking about? Like, psychological safety connection that contribute into like, I don't like my job now because the environment I'm in is causing me to be miserable versus just I'm in the wrong field. I need to move on. What do you find is more of the case? You know, I think more of the case is the environment and the people. I mean, the the number one factor for people to find satisfaction in their job is their direct manager. So that's the number one factor. Um, they call it the vertical couple. So that's the number one factor that you find. If you have a really solid, positive connection with your leader, it changes the whole experience, right? So that's just the number one. It doesn't mean they're going to be happy with their work, but that is a really important factor And then, you know, the other ones all play a role. I do absolutely work with people who, you know, they've, they've climbed the ladder and they've worked really hard and then they get to the top and they look around and they say, Ooh, I don't really like this view. (laughs) Right. Um, And you know, that's a very real thing. And then you evaluate and reflect back on what it is that does light you up. What is that spark? Like, like we were just talking about and how do I do more of that? It doesn't necessarily mean change your job. It means boost what you do more of what you love and figure what that looks like. But mostly what I find right now is it's about the connections and it's about the relationship with your leader and your team. I'm so glad you said this uh, because I think the environment right now is a, is a bit 
odd with, you know, the great resignation and just people leaving. I think a lot of employers are panicking that their employees are going to jump ship. But based on what you're saying right now is if there are these little sparks that we can ignite our people, get them more engaged and happy, it is possible. And we're less likely to see a bunch of turnover. Yes. And, you know, a crazy stat, and I might get it a tiny bit wrong in the numbers, so I'm saying that in advance. It was of like 3 million people who left their jobs when they were asked what would have gotten you to stay. It was something like 93 or 94% of people said if they had been offered professional development by their manager. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. It's, it's so, like, that's so easy, right? Like things like that, if you know that many people would have stayed. So just tuning in and being like, you're a real person, you have real goals, you have real interests and desires that you want to achieve. How do I help you get there? That's my job as your leader, right? It is. It is a job because like people, if they're not growing, they're sort of regressing, dying, whatever you want to say. And people just want to move forward. They want to grow. And if leaders aren't giving people that opportunity. Yeah, of course they're going to leave. Right. You know, and I think again, flipping the mindset of, oh, I have another responsibility. I have to have this career development, but you know what? It is your privilege and your opportunity as a leader to help grow the people that you serve. Like what a cool thing that you get to do that with them and for them and help them achieve these goals. Right. And like you said, the dying inside part, you know, progress is a top indicator of happiness. And when you're stuck, it is so hard to be happy. And when you're not happy, you're not performing, you know? And so all these things become this really vicious cycle and you can flip it into, you know, a virtuous cycle by asking these questions and help creating this momentum for people by valuing them and really seeing them as unique individuals who have a very important role that, and you have an important role to help them grow into whoever they want to become there. You said in the book that trust doesn't happen by accident. And I fully agree with that. I think it's an intentional act. We need psychological safety in the workplace. I think because people want to bring them their whole selves to work. And without that underlying trust and safety, people aren't going to show up the way that they probably want to. So what are some ways we can build trust and build that foundation of psychological safety? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know about what you're seeing, Brandon, in you know your whole network and in your job and in your company, but I see trust becoming such a big, blatant issue that everybody's wanting to address right now. Are, are you seeing the same thing? I am. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with trust and psychological safety, so much about it is having the ability to take interpersonal risks, being able to speak your mind, say, I don't know, raise your hand, challenge an opinion, um, admit a mistake without fear of shame or judgment, right? So it's that key part of without fear of shame or judgment. So as a leader, the first thing I think you need to do is set that tone and model that yourself. So being able to say, you know, I don't really know the answer to this question. Does anybody have an idea here? Or here's an example where I messed this up and I was able to fix it here. Or, you know, just being able to model, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to say, I don't know, you know, asking other people's opinions. When somebody does make a mistake, talk about like, okay, great. How do we learn from this? And so using it by setting the example of, it's okay because if you don't have that psychological safety, you know, I look at it as, you know, not just protecting people and making it a safe environment, but without that, you can't encourage courage, right? And that's where great things happen. So you have to set this foundation 
of safety so that people can take risks. And that's where innovation happens, where things grow, where, you know, where big things are able to rocket ship out of something. So I think there's so much good that comes out of it besides the vibe of the psychological safety. But in that space as a leader, being authentic, being transparent, owning it and setting that tone where mistakes can happen without judgment. You mentioned that a big component to helping people find their spark is celebrating the wins along the way. Why do you find this is important? And then give a few examples of how we could celebrate wins. Um, I think wins are huge. And I think, you know, especially in the past couple of years, what I've seen with a lot of clients is it's harder to find wins sometimes. And, you know, there was a period of time, uh, you know, a solid probably 18 months where wins were really hard to find. Uh, And so we had to search far and deep for them. But in general, you know, when you get a win, when you have a win, big or small, whatever it is, when it's named, you get a, you know, a hit of dopamine and dopamine, you know, we often think of as, you know, drug addiction or you get, you know, from, you know, something bad, right. We get this dopamine hit and we want more of it, but dopamine is agnostic. It's not good or bad. It just is. And it responds to something that feels good. And then in anticipation of more of it, you get more dopamine hit just in anticipation of that thing that felt good. And so wins are like dopamine working for you. And so when you get a little spike of, of dopamine around a win of like, wow, we achieved that, or that was a great job, or we accomplished step three of this 10 step project, you get this hit and it makes you feel good. And then you want more of it. And these dopamine hits create this progress loop and it creates momentum. And so as long as something is within reach and you can see the finish line, um, and then you're getting these bite-sized wins along the way and these bite-sized hits, it really becomes this this momentum. It's like a really good tumbleweed. (laughs) You can picture it. it just builds. And then when you have collective wins as a team, you're building that momentum together And, you know, there's nothing better than a team feeling that momentum shift towards wins at once. My only argument with with that, because I mean, I fully agree with it. I think we need that hit of dopamine. We need to celebrate the wins. We're going to feel happier and more connected as a group. But with dopamine, and I think with any of these little moments where, you know, maybe you get a ding on your phone and and there's a hit of dopamine or we celebrate wins on a regular basis. And then at some point we're sort of numb to it or you need to elevate the wins or the celebrations in order to get a bigger hit every time. Do you know what I mean by that? That's that's the only thing that I would say against it, um, where if you need to keep celebrating more and more and more, when is it ever enough? Well, you know, my, my counter on that one would be not disingenuous wins, not like, Hey, Brian, yeah. thanks for sitting up straight at your desk today. And thanks for turning in that thing you had to do. Yeah. Like, you know, not for the sake of doing it, for the sake of saying it, where then it becomes numbing and it's just like unimportant. Yeah. Right. But you know, we're always trying to make progress towards something. So when you take something that might be a six month project where you're not going to reap the reward for six months when you finish it, and there's probably going to be setbacks, there's probably going to be times where you're waiting for somebody else or something goes wrong, and then it just feels deflating. But if you say, okay, at the end of this week, we actually achieved two key things toward this end goal that's six months down the road, and that was awesome, right? So let's those two pieces of this bigger thing. So you're taking something very real and breaking it down into bite-sized pieces that matter toward the bigger goal and celebrating those along the way. Instead of saying, you know, I want to lose 50 pounds and you're only going to celebrate when you get to 50 pounds. Yeah, you're like, every five point. pounds is a win for me and I'm going to celebrate it every five pounds. And it doesn't mean you do some big, you know, go on a vacation. It could mean like, 
I'm going to just, you know, call a friend and be really happy, or I'm just going to, you know, watch my favorite movie tonight and indulge, whatever it is, but somehow breaking it down into something you can celebrate along the way, instead of being like, I'm never going to make it to 50 pounds because this process sucks. That's a good point. It feels too overwhelming. Like, I'll never get there. Uh, what I also like about it too, in celebrating this, you know, the milestones is what I'd say is um, team alignment. So if you know you're all sort of like rowing in the right direction and that you're hitting these milestones and you're celebrating them, you're like, hey, we're on to something. Let's keep going. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. And alignment is key. Um, There's a whole chapter on that. I find that so much of what ends up going wrong, where people don't meet expectations, is because they're not aligned on them. And again, if you're not clarifying, if you're not asking questions, if you're not, you know, giving context, then somebody might think that they're doing an exceptional job and then find out they didn't, right? Because it didn't meet your expectations of an exceptional job. So the idea of making sure that everybody's aligned to what what are we really trying to go for here? What are the expectations? What does that look like? What are all the priorities? How do we each play a role in this? What are questions we have? How do we continue to reevaluate and course correct as we need to? But like you said, when you're rowing in the same direction and everybody is because they understand it and they understand exactly what that looks like and feels like for the end um, and the in-between, that's where, again, the the magic happens. You suggested that play at work, it has health benefits, it makes people happy, it brings people together. What types of play do you recommend uh, that people can bring to work? Like if leaders are trying to inject play, laughter, humor, whatever it may be, or activities, what sort of things really ignite the group? Yeah, you know, I think what we learn is, you know, kids laugh so much more than adults. And as you know, we get- Like chasing bubbles. I'm like, why are you so happy chasing bubbles? I wish I liked anything as much as bubbles. <laughs> I know, wouldn't that be awesome? And yeah. that's the thing, it's like lightening things up. And there's a huge release of hormones that happen when we laugh or even in the anticipation of laughter, like all the bonding chemicals, all the feel good chemicals, all of these things come up for us when we laugh and our cortisol, which is our stress hormone goes down when we laugh. So to create this environment where we learn, where we form these great connections, where we just establish trust, right? Where we feel good and are happy, humor and levity automatically create that as an outcome. So it's such a simple and fun way to create all of these things that we want in the workplace. So bringing that side of yourself as a leader and knowing like, hey, it's okay. Everything doesn't have to be serious. Of course, we have serious work to do, or you know, there are times where, of course, you have to be serious, but to just insert the times where it is appropriate to be light, to be fun, to make sure that there is time for some form of play, whether it's, it doesn't have to be a traditional team building activity, but I have a client, they do, um, they do cornhole and beer in the parking lot, you know, and they just, you know, go outside. They're like, Hey guys, we need a break. We've had a hard week. Let's just go outside. It doesn't have to be expensive, but just inserting that some clients, they'll go to a comedy club or they'll have like a meme thing that goes around that they're going back and forth about something funny, but just somehow inserting that lightness as the leader that that's acceptable. And it's actually encouraged. I want to give listeners a little nugget because it just reminds I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but back when we were all in the office, we have about 90 employees and we do all team meetings on a regular basis. And one of the things that we're always trying to find activities and I'm on our culture committee and we're always trying to find activities we could do just to break down barriers, have fun, you know, get people laughing, whatever. And I found this activity called a rock, paper, scissor tournament. <laughs> what the... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so silly, but it was so fun and it's easy. So what people did was they'd find a partner and they do best, or I think they do best of three or just, it could have been just one round, but they do rock, paper, scissors, shoot. The winner moves on, finds another person. Meanwhile, the person that you just beat, they follow you along, cheering you on. So at the very end, you have a one-on-one and you have half the room behind one person and half the room behind the noise, the laughter. I've never seen it like that chaotic. And it was so fun. It was so easy. There's no planning required. I recommend people do that because that was was so fun, especially with a medium-sized group like that where we had like, we probably had 50 people in there at the time. But Wow. Did you come up with that? No, I, I think I just Googled it and found it. And I was like, this seems like it'd be easy. And so we've done it several times since because it's, it was so easy and fun. That's a great idea. I hope a lot of people hear that one because that shows you how simple it is. And that just engages people. And I'm sure everybody was smiling. Everybody was laughing. Their moods were raised, right? And that's contagious. Yeah, I loved it. One more thing I want to touch on, and then I'll let you go because we've been kind of long. Gratitude and appreciation. These are huge to positive psychology, to an engaged workforce, how do you recommend we practice this regularly? And is it an independent practice? Is it a group practice? Could it be both? I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, it could be both. Um, you know, independently, there's so much research around gratitude. It is no longer a soft science. It's a hard science. They study it so much with MRI. It's no longer woo-woo. No longer anymore. woo-woo with all the stuff. We keep <laughs> moving things out of the woo-woo bucket. <laughs> that's that's very good. Like mindfulness and meditation, all that stuff is out of the woo-woo category. Yes. <laughs> when they can do MRI studies and show that things change your brain, I think it's no longer in the woo-woo category. Yeah. category. And gratitude changes your brain. I think it's the quickest way to change your brain. And so when you're able to practice gratitude, so many studies show two minutes or less in 21 days can change your brain, two minutes a day. Um, and so the simplest way is every day saying three things you're grateful for. And if you do that for 21 days, it is shown to change your brain. So we either are, you know, there are three ways we're kind of wired. One is default negative where we scan the world for, you know, what's wrong. Default neutral is kind of, we just see it as it is. Default positive, we scan for what's good. And so you're able to shift one whole notch in 21 days just by three things a day that you're grateful for. And kind of the rules around it is not just say the same thing every day. Like I have food, I have a house, I have a family, but more really, what are you thinking about from today? What can you pull out from today? And through that practice, you start scanning for new things every day and you start noticing more things every day, which is what ultimately changes your brain. So I have teams that do like we call them gratitexts, where it might be a, you know, a team that has a text thread and every day, every person adds three things they were grateful for that day. Wow. And it becomes this 21 day challenge. Oh, good. And it's this 21 day challenge for these different teams to do. And you will see, you will see so many things happen. One is the gratitude part changes your brain. Two is the type of connection you form. Somebody might share something personal, right? Like, I'm really thrilled that my son was invited to a birthday party. You know, it's like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Something's going on with you. Or there's some this empathy, new connection, right? And when people share these things, and it doesn't have to be deep, it doesn't have to be super vulnerable, but you can, you know, and it's just this idea of doing this collectively for 21 days. I love that task. And one more thing that I have teams that do is they have a gratitude wall. 
Um, and we can do this virtually as well. It started in person where you'd have a wall with these little magnets, like these little whiteboard magnets. And through the week, people would just write on the magnets, things they were grateful for throughout the week. And it was just a wall. So everybody would pass by and see these different things. And at the end of the week, they would go through it together as a team and see all these different things they were grateful for. And so that was great. And you can move that to a virtual kind of wind wall, like a whiteboard wall. Can I put you on the spot? We're going to both do three things we're grateful for to end this podcast. Okay. What are three things you're grateful for? Okay. Well, first is that I'm, I'm okay on the spot. That's good. I like that. First is that my book's coming out tomorrow. I'm so grateful Yay. for that. Two is I'm really grateful that you read my book so carefully <laughs> that you were able to ask me such <laughs> awesome questions. So I'm really grateful for that. And three is I am really grateful that I have a really supportive extended family. I love that. Okay. Here's what I'm thankful for. My wife's a saint. She took my kids to her sister's house for a few days during spring break just to give them something to do. So I have a house that's quiet and I needed it. So that's one thing. Two, I've been having a lot of pain in my back and I had an MRI last week and I found out today it's just a slight slip disc, but nothing scary. So that's two. And three, I love having conversations like this. It gives me so much energy to finish the day and I'm thankful for you. Oh, I'm thankful for you. That's my fourth. I'm really grateful for oh, that's you. Good. Love it. Love it. Well, what did I miss? Anything you want to like end with uh, a lasting word or point people to the book, whatever you want to do. Okay. So one more thing that I just think is a really easy thing to remember for a leader is it begins with you. And if we some bring everything together, it begins with you and you choose how you show up and you have the power to choose to spark brilliance in people around you just by taking that pause and deciding how you want to show up. And it is our privilege as leaders to be able to do that for ourselves and for others. So that's just ending with, it begins with you. And in terms of my book, yes, um, by the time anybody hears this, it'll be available on Amazon, Spark Brilliance. I would love to hear what people think. I would love to hear anybody who reads it to let me know if they like it, what stood out, what didn't. And I'm just grateful for any, any support and any feedback and you're on social media i think you're on like instagram linkedin yep twitter i'm um, all those places yep jackie go connect with jackie yes connect with me my guest <laughs> today has been jackie insinger thanks for being part of the podcast such a fun discussion appreciate you oh i think that was awesome thank you so much brandon for having me 